We've been talking about the first part of Revelation uh, that begins with John writing, uh, well, actually Jesus dictating seven letters to seven churches that were active at that time, the first century in Western Turkey. We've covered the first of those six letters so far. Jesus meets John on the island of Patmos. He scares John to death but not really, just close to death. And then when John realizes he isn't dead, he, uh, Jesus says, uh, I want to show you some things, and I want you to write down what you see. And the rest of the rev- revelation is broken into two unequal bodies of content. One is the seven letters that he's writing to seven churches for things that are going on right then in that time. And the rest of it is him showing him a picture of things that were going to happen at any time. So what was happening, what was about to happen? There is some debate as to whether the actual construction of Revelation, if you read it through from chapter 1 to the end, if it's actually written in chronological order. In other words, you know, after chapter 1 and John falls down dead and he wakes up, is the very next thing that Jesus said, hey, write down these letters? Or did he start off with chapter 4 and, and then John says, after I got up, I saw a door open in heaven. And did he just kind of see everything and hear everything and write it down and then organize it later? Um, I don't want to say that it doesn't matter because it does to a degree, but really for Jermaine to our discussions, whether those seven letters Jesus told him that at the end of the vision or before the vision, it doesn't affect the way that we read the book at all. So you can spend a lot of time looking through all those different things, um, and it's an interesting read, but it really doesn't impact what we're doing this morning at all. We have the content in its entirety as God wanted us to have it. And so what we're going to do today is look at the seventh of the seven letters, and then we're going to transition to when uh, God says, John, I want to show you what heaven's really like. Here you go. He is the, how do I say this? Um, He's the most reliable author we have of people who say they've seen heaven. You with me? Okay. He's the most reliable author that we have. Um, So uh, we're going to look at that, and uh, it may be different than what you might be thinking, um, but we'll take a look at that in just a moment. So I will read to you for the third time, I think now publicly, if you've been with us the last few weeks, if I can see it lighting up here, it's rough. Um, let me read to you the letter to the church in Laodicea. I will be reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This is Jesus speaking. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do. I should let them read it. That you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but since you're like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're really wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind and naked. So I advise you, buy gold from me, gold that's been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments from me. So you won't be ashamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes so you'll really be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So the idea was that John was to write all seven letters to seven different churches all at once, put them in one piece of mail, roll it up, and send it by post to each city 
one at a time that's mentioned in chronological, geographical, or geographical order as, as read here in Revelation. And each of these seven churches would gather together on the Lord's Day and they'd select a reader from their congregation to read the letter that's not only addressed to them but to all the other six churches. The reason is because every time you read a letter like this or you hear a letter like this that Jesus has written to another church, it's appropriate for them to say back then and us to say to me today, is this true of me too and to what extent? So for those of you thinking, what value is there in me spending the next 10 minutes thinking about a letter written to a church 2,000 years ago, there is your answer. If it's correctable to them yesterday, and then it needs to be corrected in us today. If it's encouraged and affirmed and Jesus says, keep on doing this, and that was good 2,000 years ago, it's still good today. So as we listen to what it meant to them, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this also true of me and to what extent? So some of the ground we've covered over the last couple of weeks, the big idea we've been working with is that for Christians, persecution is common. Responding blessedly to persecution is uncommon. It is not unusual for Christians to be persecuted for their beliefs. In fact, if you're experiencing no tension between the culture of Baltimore and the culture of your Christianity, you're probably living a very tepid, lukewarm, uninfluential Christian life. But the way we respond to persecution uh, is very different, and it varies, and we see that among the churches. So we pulled out some meaningful thoughts from the letter to Sardis. We pulled out this thought. As opposition towards identifying as a Christian increases and it will, you'll do one of two things when you're persecuted. You'll either hold fast to Jesus or you'll try and blend into the world. So we talked about that. Secondly, we looked at the letter to Philadelphia, the only one of the seven letters where Jesus has nothing bad to say, only good, and he says to them, don't be discouraged when your loyalty to Jesus doesn't appear to pay off with visible results. Trust the rewarder and remain faithful. And then this week, we're gonna look at the, the one thought from the church of Laodicea. It's in your notes. Here's one thought. Here's what he's saying to them. Until you recognize your own blindness, there's no hope for your healing. In other words, if you don't think there's anything wrong with you, even if everybody else sees it, there's no hope for you getting any better. Your wholeness, your healing, your, let's use a secular term, your self-improvement is directly dependent on your own recognition that you have brokenness and you have a problem. There has to be ownership and awareness of that. And he's trying to get this through to Laodicea. It's almost though he assumes that anybody who ever reads this letter, if you're a Christian, you'll read it, you'll see what the problem is, and you will automatically assume, well, I'm not like that. I could give you a list of people who are but not me. It's almost though he assumes that if Echo Community Church reads this letter, the default response of everybody in the room who considers himself to be a Christian is going to be, certainly that's not me. Can I invite you to put your defenses down for a little bit before God at least and ask yourself as we study through this, is this true of me and to what extent? This is the seventh church that was written to seven letters. And, and in most of these letters, when Jesus addresses them, he breaks things down into two categories. Things they're doing well that he affirms and encourages and things they're doing poorly or not doing at all that he rebukes, that he corrects, and that he challenges. There are two exceptions. The church to Philadelphia, he only has good things to say and nothing negative. And this church is another exception. Here, he only has negative to say there is nothing at all good that he has to say about Laodicea. It's all negative, scathingly so, as we'll see in just a moment. He says, 
you turn my stomach, you nauseate me, you make me want to vomit. That's even worse to me than him just saying, I'm angry with you. Also understand he's writing to Christians here. These people are saved. They've accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They've made confession of their sins. They understand doctrine. If you gave them a a Bible quiz, they'd score highly on it. These are not ignorant, worldly people who know no different. These are absolutely Christians. And he uses many, many, many medical terms to tell them, you're sick. And you're so sick, you don't know how sick you are. But Dr. Jesus is here, and I'm bringing malpractice against you because you've diagnosed yourself incorrectly. But I've got a good diagnosis, and not only that, I have medicine for you. That if you'll listen and you'll admit that you need it, you won't argue about whether it's a blue pill or a red pill or a yellow pill or whether it's an IV. When you see how sick you are, you're just going to say, give me the meds that will work. And this is what he says to them. But before that, what do we know about Laodicea? I'll just, we know a lot. Actually, Laodicea is a city that we've got tons of archaeological and historical information about. But three things germane to our discussion. They were a textile center, they were a banking center, and they were a medical center. That's really what they were known for on that day. In a textile center, they were known for uh, making garments and making clothes. In fact, they were shipped everywhere. It was big business for them. Um, one person that I looked at, some of their studies had shown that they actually had sheep there that grew with this thick, glossy black wool that was unique to Laodicea. And so if you wanted clothes that had that type of wool in it, it came from Laodicea. So they were, they were really good at making clothes, and they were well-dressed because of that. Secondly, they were a banking center. Um, they were very, very, very wealthy, one of the most wealthy cities in, in, the, in, the ancient, uh, in the ancient Roman Empire. And so all of the centers of banking and finance moved there. They were that wealthy that when earthquakes devastated their city in AD 60, they were the only town that was able to rebuild itself by paying complete cash out of their own treasury without having to borrow a penny from Rome. That's how rich they were. They literally had enough money to replace all of their possessions without insurance. They could replace everything they had, rebuild everything brick upon brick, replace it all just in excess cash that they had laying around in their city treasury. They took great pride that they could save themselves and didn't have to depend upon Rome or anybody else. They had great security in life because they had done well with their money. They saved up a lot. Dave Ramsey would have been proud. They could pay cash for everything and lived with absolutely no fear and no dependence on anybody because of their own wealth. But as we'll see in a moment, it also led them into a false sense of thinking that they didn't need God for anything and that they could buy their way out of all of life's problems. The third thing that they were was that they were a medical center. They had a major medical university there, and as I've mentioned in the last two weeks, and I won't go into as much detail today, they were known for their proprietary research in developing pharmaceuticals and medicines. They were the first city to develop multi-symptom medicines that could treat multiple diseases and sicknesses at once with one medication, and one of the things they were most famous for was their eye salve. They were able to create this uh, substance, this, this eye salve that you could apply to your eyes and stop the spread of diseases that were spreading through contact with fingers that would touch eyes and spread everywhere. So they were known to that, uh, known for that. So knowing that, it's interesting some of the terms that Jesus used when he diagnoses them. He kind of compares it to their diagnosis of themselves. What was Jesus's initial diagnosis? It's a little different than the underlying disease. His initial diagnosis is that he says, I'm looking at you and I know what you do. I'm seeing everything you do. Not the city of Laodicea, the church, the Christians. He says, and you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. So before we talk a little bit about what I think Jesus was saying and how we interpret that, how they would have heard it, 
we have to really kind of understand the terms here. He uses this term lukewarm. And in our culture, we think lukewarm is kind of like the mixture, the midpoint between hot and cold or room temperature. That's not incorrect, but it's a little incomplete. Um, We actually are given the opposite of lukewarmness uh, a few verses later. And maybe by understanding its opposite, it will help us understand what he really meant by lukewarm. If you skip down to verse, um, verse 19... He contrasts how, how they are with how they should be. He's saying you're lukewarm, but instead, here's what I want you to do. Verse 19, he says, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. So he's saying you're being lukewarm, but I want you to be the opposite of lukewarm. And the opposite, he uses the words diligent and indifferent. Now, I don't like to take the translation of the Bible to task a lot. But, if you go, but this isn't really a great translation in the New Living Translation here. Um, I, I will give you a long word study to condense down in a very short. The original Greek word he uses for the opposite of lukewarm is the Greek word zelos, which is where we get the English, English word zealous. And actually, that's not even the best way to translate it. Most of the times the Greek word is translated zelos. It's not translated zealous in the Bible. It's translated jealous. Here's what he's saying in the best approximation of English. Stop being lukewarm, start being jealous. Now that's a little troubling, isn't it? We think of that word jealous as pretty negative. In fact, we can go into the Bible and Paul says, don't be jealous because where jealousy is, there's envy and there's strife. And we think of jealousy as a very, very, very negative. Um, And it can be. But there's also some positive uses of the word jealous in the Bible, aren't there? Can you think of any? The Lord is jealous for you. We have a jealous God. Have you ever heard that verse before? There's a difference between jealous for and jealous of. The word jealousy, to be jealous simply means this, to set your love intensely on someone. That's what the word jealous means. Now, if you set your love intensely on yourself, you will, it will manifest itself in being jealous of others. If your whole world is egocentric and it's all about you and you compare yourself to everybody else, you will become jealous of anyone else who makes you feel less than who you would like to feel you are. You'll be jealous of their social status, of their physical beauty, of their opportunities, of their wealth of their possessions, because it's all about you. You are so intense in your love for yourself that jealousy only manifests itself in envy and in strife and in conflict. That's what it means to be jealous of, and that's the negative hemisphere of jealousy. But if you set your love intensely on someone who's not you, you become jealous for if you set your love intensely on a spouse, if you set your love intensely on the Lord, you become jealous for them, which means there is a, every time you think of them, there is an explosion of love in your heart and you would stop at nothing to be of service for them. You think only of their happiness, only of their joy. You are so intense in your love for them that it just moves you, it heats you, or it cools you to respond to them in such a way that adds value to them and that's where you find your deepest levels of soul satisfaction. 
And what Jesus is saying to this church through John is that you're lukewarm. There's, you're not jealous for me. You're completely indifferent to me. I inspire no hotness, no coldness. I inspire no response to me that you resp- not even com- compared to the way you respond to others and other things. You're capable of being hot and cold. There's other things that have your heart. You know me intellectually, but it hasn't changed you. This is what he's really getting at there. So there's a big difference between jealous for and jealous and. So let's be very clear. When he says these are lukewarm Christians, a lukewarm Christian is not a hypocrite. That's not what we're talking about here. These are not people who are saying we're saved and we're going to heaven, but on the side we're living adulterous lives. Or on the side we're, we're gaining finances through immoral means. Or on the side we're living a very profane, uh, a hardcore addictive lifestyle. We're involved in all kinds of sexual deviancy. That's not what this is. These are not people who say A and believe B. A lukewarm Christian is not someone who's a, a hypocrite. A lukewarm Christian is someone who's, who's the supreme passion of their heart has been set on something other than God. The thing they want more than anything else is something other than God. They want God, but not as much as they want wealth. Not as much as they want love. Not as much as they want elimination of debt. Not as much as they want children. Not as much as they want fill in the blank. More education, better status, a title that matches their name, health. They want God, but not as much. The supreme passion of their heart is something other than God. That's a lukewarm Christian. Therefore, they have no passion, no zeal, no jealousy for the things of God. So here's what he says. He says something really difficult. He says, I wish that you would be hot, which makes sense, right? In our thinking. I wish that you would be hot because that means zeal, that means passion, that means intense love, that means jealousy for. I wish that you would be hot. But shockingly, he also says, or I wish that you would be cold. And some of the ways this passage has been taught makes us a huge problem for preachers and for scholars. Why would Jesus desire the church to be cold rather than lukewarm? A lot of times we look at this as, at, as gradations. We think Jesus is taking this task, the church to task because they don't have enough passion in their worship. They're not lifting their hands or crying enough. They're not saving enough people. And we think it's about spiritual intensity. And so we, we preach it this way. We all should be hot. Or because hot is really what Jesus wants. That means on fire for God and all the other terms we use. Or we should be cold. And what cold means is spiritually dead as a bone because at least we're being honest and not being hypocrites. Why would Jesus say being hot or cold are equally pleasure to me? That that just throws the whole gospel out the window. Because that would be like he's just as comfortable with you not knowing him at all as you knowing him. That would mean he's colossally indifferent to the plight of the human condition. That means it makes no difference to him whether you love him or not, whether you respond to him or not. No big deal. MBD to God. Right? That's hogwash. That's not what this is saying at all. Because if you remember what we told you about Laodicea, it was an almost perfect city. You know the one thing that they lacked? Drinking water. Any water at all. They had no water source in Laodicea. And you can Google right now, and some of you did this last week. You can Google this right now, you know, uh, the aqueduct or the piping system in Laodicea. And you'll see all these pictures preserved today. You can go put your hands on them yourself. You can fact check me, okay? 
There, are two, there were two pipelines going in and out of Laodicea. One came from Hierapolis, which was six miles north. They are known then and today for their hot springs. And back in those days, if you were sick and you needed to be exposed to hot springs with their healing medicinal properties, you'd go to Hierapolis. So they had to pump hot water in from there so they could have hot water. But then there's also Colossae. They were known for their cold springs of really delicious, refreshing drinking water. So they had to pop hot, pipe hot water in from one and cold water for another. So as they're seeing, hearing Jesus say, you should be hot or you should be cold, but you're neither, you're lukewarm. Here's how they're hearing it said. We're neither hot enough to heal people who are sick spiritually or cold enough to refresh people who are thirsty spiritually. We are completely indifferent. We're lukewarm. If someone who had back pains came to our lukewarm water, all they'd be is wet. If someone was parched and they came to us for a drink, they'd take one mouthful of that room temperature stank water and they'd spit it right out. There is no thermostatic, thermostatic impact to our church whatsoever. We're completely indifferent because we chase something else with our heart. So it's a big problem. Why? How does somebody get that way? And is that true of you? Is it true of me? And to what extent? Here is the, here's the reality. Here's what he says. Verses 17 and 18. He, he tells us how they got this way. Jesus says there's a direct link between wealth, intelligence, education, achievement, and spiritual lukewarmness. And he says that link is when you're well off. When you've got a job, when you have a family with two incomes, when you've got a high school education or a college degree, a master's degree, a doctorate, when you've got a single family home and two cars in the driveway, when you have the option of choosing where you want to go out to eat, when you can take a vacation, when you've got a closet with multiple different clothes that you can choose to wear at any given time, when you have more pairs of shoes than days of the week, when you're sharp, when you're put together. You may say, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, but the reality of it doesn't grip your heart. Because you don't see yourself as broken. His love isn't a miracle. You think you're generally a pretty good person who happens to make mistakes every now and again. And so you have an intellectual understanding that you're lost, but you really don't feel like you're lost. You have an intellectual understanding that you're a sinner, but you don't feel like one. And the, way, the reason you don't is because you've covered up all those other feelings with things and stuff and achievement and education and success and wealth. It doesn't electrify you or move you anymore. You're not hot enough to heal anyone. You're not cold enough to refresh anyone. You're lukewarm. And it's very, 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 very hard, spiritually speaking, to overcome being smart. It's very difficult, spiritually speaking, to overcome the pride that comes with being educated. It's very, very, very difficult, spiritually speaking, to stand here in Perry Hall where the median income is $82,000 a year, where 90% of the people in our target demographic have gone on to some form of secondary education, where the median home prices are over $300,000. It's very difficult to stand in this pulpit and say, let's come before God as those who are poor, those who are blind. We don't see ourselves that way. We know it. We think of other poor people that way, but we don't think of ourselves that way. And, and, and John says, Jesus says, through John to the church, here's the problem. You say of yourself, we are rich, we are well-clothed, we are well-educated, and I say to you, you are sick, 
you are naked and you are poor. He says you're poor. What does that mean in the Bible? That means you think you have all this wealth, but being poor means you do not have the currency to change your current conditions. That's what poor really means. You lack the currency to do anything about the condition of your life. He's saying you think because you're so wealthy and you have so much money stored away, you're so financially secure, you have so much financial peace that you have everything you'll ever need without having to depend on anybody else to save you. You can save yourself. He says, not so. You're so bankrupt, you don't have the ability to change yourself into the person you need to be. You can only get that from me. He says, you think you're so well-clothed, but you're really naked. And what does the Bible mean when it says naked? It's talking about being sinful, being ashamed, feeling guilty. What he's saying is, you're really sinful. You should feel some sense of shame over the sins of your life. You should, but you don't because you've covered over all those feelings of emptiness with success and achievement, status. You don't even recognize how sinful you really are. And outside of the Holy Spirit, you'll never see it. And in fact, let's talk about your eyesight. You think, you medical people, he says, you think you're so good at diagnosing. You're perfectly healthy. And he says, don't you see, ironically, that you need to get eye medicine from me, he says. You think you can heal all your own problems because you're so smart. But the problem is you don't even see how lukewarm you really are. And unless you come to me, you can't manufacture that kind of medicine no matter how smart you think you are. It's a scathing indictment. And Jesus' conclusion, because you are this way, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You turn my stomach. Just like that. So what do we do with this? Is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for you or me? Sure. He says three, a couple things. I'll just give them to you real quickly because I've got to hurry to close. He says, first of all, you need to grasp that salvation comes from God. Now, these are Christians. You don't think they already knew that? They knew this. They knew salvation came from God, but knowing that changed nothing about their life. They took pride in the fact that they could save themselves. They say, we don't need anything from the Romans. We don't need anything from anybody else. But Jesus says, no, you need a white robe from me, not one you can make. You need a white robe, and you need to recognize it can only come from me. What does a white robe mean? An acceptable life, cleansed clean from sin. Sin because of Jesus. The clothes you have, the way you cover your own nakedness, if they were earned by achievement, they can be lost just as easily. Anything can change. Well, I don't need to come to Jesus for my talents and my abilities, for my income. Friend, one accident, one incident, one bad day, one economic downturn, everything that we've earned by achievement can just topple and go away tomorrow. Don't you want some things to base your life on that aren't dependent upon conditions you can't control? Don't you want something in your life to be dependent upon someone who controls everything? Anything can change. The only garment you can never lose, Jesus says, is the one I give you because it's stitched together by grace. He also says, you're going to have to patiently endure some very difficult times with me at your side. That's how you get out of being lukewarm. Where do you get that from? He says, here's what I give. I give gold, but only gold that's been refined by testing. 
only gold that's been refined by the fire. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you really want to eliminate lukewarmness, you have to embrace the persecutions and the difficulties of the trials of life, and you have to walk through them with Jesus at your side. There's too many Christians, especially Western American Christians, that want a cushy, nerfy Christian life. Everything is persecution. Well, you know, I put this thing on Facebook, and three people disliked it, so I blocked them. I could spend a whole morning talking about how spineless that is. That's not persecution, that's life, and sometimes you just invited it on yourself. But the reality is this. Jesus never said Christianity is paved with nerf. A lot of us would be offended if he stood here this morning, he'd be less politically correct than me. He'd be like, listen, could you just suck it up? Stop whining and feeling so sorry for yourself all the time. Get with the program. What do you expect? Look at what Jesus went through. You, what you're going through pales in comparison. I'm not going to take you out of it, but I'll lead you through it. But I've got to grow you up. And at some point, you're going to have to get to some, some grown-up food here. And that means walking through persecution without always having to go show everybody all your boo-boos. That's what he would say. Not me. That's what he would say. <laughs> and he says, finally, be open to his love and seek fellowship and prayer. He says, you make me vomit, but I'm knocking on the door because I want to be with you. Now, these were Christians who prayed, but when they prayed, they just did work. Jesus is saying, I, I'm not here all the time just to, I mean, I'm here all the time to hear everything you're saying, but you don't want any fellowship with me. Back in their culture, to knock on the door and go sit down with someone his friends was intense fellowship. And what he's saying is lukewarm Christians go to God with their lists and their demands and their complaints. They don't go to God because they say, God, I'm sitting before you today and I want to be overwhelmed by your love. Fill this room with your grace. Fill this room with your power. I want to know you. I want to sense you. I want to experience you. And if you are content to live the Christian life devoid of his experience, you'll naturally gravitate towards lukewarm Christianity. Lukewarm Christianity has said, I want the knowledge, but none of the experience. I want information, but I don't want any of the emotion or the passion or the zeal because I'm just not that kind of a person. That's inappropriate for me. You know, when you visit other churches in other parts of the world, that's different than our church. The language is different. But I've had an experience multiple times where people from different parts of the world would come here or I would go there. And people from third world parts of the world or areas that are known for poverty, if you really press them, they'll tell you interesting things about what they think about the American church. I remember my first missions trip that I took to El Salvador. Um, this was going back a ways, 2003. I went with a group of 20 students um, some of you have been to the place where I went to, Castillo del Rey, and one of the nights in the evenings we would go to do church services, and they'd ask me to preach, which I don't, don't do well in Spanish, so, you know, it's intimidating for me to, you know, how do you preach? Some of you have had that experience. How do I share a testimony when I know it's going to be translated? And so I wrote out a couple notebook pages of a little message that's completely forgettable now. Um, I, I don't remember what it was. It probably wasn't anything spectacular. Um, we went into this little village, and when I say little village, it was a 45-minute drive followed by a 30-minute walk to get there. Um, it was a village of about 150 people, men, women, boys, and girls, in El Salvador. Um, and we were there for their 7 o'clock Tuesday night church service. And the church service was in the nicest building in their village, which was made out of cinder blocks, and it actually had tree branches to make a roof out of it. It had uh, one electrical outlet, which was one light bulb, and we brought with us a battery-operated boombox and two microphones, and they thought this was just like the most amazing thing that they had ever had before. So when they said it was time for church, um, at 6.55, every last 
seat on every bench in the little cinder block building, which was about, you know, the size of half of this middle section was completely full, people sitting shoulder to shoulder the whole way across. And the pastor comes over to the translator and says, the village is here, we're ready for church. And the translator said, the village is here, they're ready for church. I said, what does that exactly mean? He said, everybody in the village is here. And they sang a couple songs, which I didn't recognize in Spanish, and uh, the singing was a little rough. Um, there was no musical accompaniment. There was, not the, there was no harmonies. It was a little rough. So I was completely lost the whole time, but it was kind of cool. They introduced me, and I got up to do my little speech or whatever it was, and I'd say a sentence, and the translator would say a sentence, and I'd say another sentence, and he'd say another sentence. I tried humor, nothing. Like much of my experience here, I tried, <laughs> except for that one. We'll, we'll save that one. Make fun of self works. Um, I tried a couple of the little things that I tried in the South sometimes on Sunday to get the people going when they weren't giving me much response on a Sunday morning, nothing. They, every person in the room sat there stoic, arms folded, looking at me, and I'm like, these... Look at all these, not the Jesus videos, but you know, it, it, um, you, you know what I'm talking about. I'm like, these people, man, they really need something that I don't have this morning. And I, I, I don't know what this evening is. Like, nothing, something's coming, something wasn't connecting. So I just landed the plane. And at the end, I said what I always say, what every pastor is supposed to say, let's, let's just pray. And they translated that. And I'm getting ready to pray. And as soon as I said, let's, the translator said, let's just pray, the entire room. Everybody stood up, and they spread out. And I'm talking about as loud as I've ever heard people. They started praying. It was so uncomfortably loud that after a few minutes, I actually had to plug my ears a little bit. And I'm talking tears streaming down their faces, hands outstretched. I mean, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I didn't know what to do. I just went and sat down in my seat. Translator comes over a few minutes later, and I said, um, this is, what are they praying for? Like, what is, I'm thinking, man, there must be somebody sick in the room. There must be something. He said, he said, well, and he's listening. He says, well, this one over here is just saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. This one over here is saying, I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more of you. This one over there is praying for the world. I'm thinking they're not praying for money. They're not praying for jobs. They're not praying for clothes. They're not praying about this argument they had. They're not praying about their sick goat over on there. They're not praying about any of that stuff. After about 20 minutes, you know, and I'm trying to like get into it, and I kind of did, and then I'm like, I, I asked the translator, I said, what time does the service end? And he looked at me the same way I look at my son when after I've spent X amount of dollars to take him to a ball game, and it's tied in the fifth inning, he says, Daddy, when are we going to go home? We're going to go home when we go home. <laughs> and that translator looked at me like, when is this going to end? He's like, well, we don't, we don't end. And here I am thinking, man, these people need something. And I'm thinking, I, about 20 minutes later, I'm like, I need what they have. You would not see that in one of our churches. We have too much. We come late, we leave early. It's an inconvenience. We're here half the time. We're critical. I mean, we all seem to know what the perfect church should be and what it should have and what ratios it should have and how much light and how much smoke and how many times we should preach from the Old Testament and the New Testament, what the pastor should wear, how he should cut his hair, what kind of refreshments we should serve, what the website should look like. We're connoisseurs of religion. We're lukewarm. It's not enough to just say we're going to come together and worship God and learn the Bible. Well, it is enough because you're here, and that's about what we do here at Echo. 
going to come together and worship the Lord together. We're going to be the body. We're going to read the Bible. When you talk to people from these third world churches, they're always stumped by a couple things about Western churches. They're amazed by how little we pray. They're amazed by how much we spend on ourselves and how little we give away. And they're amazed by how timid we are to take a stand for Christ when many of them are persecuted and go to jail and some of them are killed for their faith. And we have to spend a six-week teaching series to get you to invite somebody to church. I'm putting myself in that equation saying, yeah, to some extent these things are true of me. But it's not irreparable. But I want the supreme love of my heart. The person whose presence I wanted to be in more than anything else to be Christ. And I want the rest of my life to be ordered around it. Rather than I just fit him in between the grocery trips and the home projects and the ball games and work and life and friendships and relationships. I want him to come in and sit down with me and eat his friends. I love the moments when I will just get lost in the moments of God's presence and tears fill my eyes. I love when I can sit here on a Sunday morning with you and we just get to a special place in worship and I feel as though this pales, what I'm getting in that experience with God pales in comparison to everything, anything else. I love being hungry for the appetite of God, but friend, we cannot, we cannot expect to impact a culture when our, therm, our, when our temperature is dictated by the culture. We're just going to drift to lukewarm. Jesus says to this church, I wish you'd be hot enough to heal the spiritually sick or cold enough to refresh the spiritually thirsty. And the hope for them is to understand that salvation comes from God. The hope for them is to patiently endure difficult times with Jesus at their side. The hope was to be open to his love and seek fellowship in his prayer. And just so that I finish your notes, he has this jarring transition to chapter four. He says, I look and I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I heard before that scared him to death spoke to me like a trumpet blast and said, come up here and I'll show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw the throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Now, this is the part of Revelation law you get amped up about. Okay, the letters are done. Now bring on the apocalypse, right? So they're setting the stage. It's like the beginning, of, you know, they're playing the intro music and all the people are coming in, right? So instantly I was in the spirit. I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled around his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him. Now we get into the decoding part, right? And 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white, had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like a crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back outstanding the first of these living beings was like a lion the second was like an ox the third had a human face the fourth was like an eagle in flight each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out draw that picture um, day and night and night after night they kept saying holy 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 is the lord god almighty the one who was and is and who is still to come Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before him and say, you're worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they all, and they all exist be, so that you're pleased. So basically the apostle John is allowed to do something I've never been allowed to do. He sees an open door to heaven and he says, come up here and take a look. 
This is happening simultaneously. Here's what God's doing. It's like this crazy sci-fi experience. He's saying, I want to show you reality. And John's thinking, well, reality is right here on Patmos. He's like, no, let me show you reality. You're just living in like this side street reality. You thought it was Main Street. But I'm going to show you what's really real and what's happening simultaneously. I'm going to show you like the fourth dimension. What you're living in right now is just a broken, dim, faded version of this. Let me show you heaven. And so everybody sits on the edge of their seat. What does heaven really look like? Is it a gigantic swimming pool? Is it nothing but ocean? Is it an all-you-can-eat buffet? Is it, you know, is it a rock concert? What, what is heaven really like? Is it a big mansion with lots of video games and lots of, you know, it's worship. Ooh, that's not enough for me, Pastor. Ooh, I mean, 15 minutes, I've given you that. Usually three songs plus an open and a close. And sometimes if it's good, I'll even, I'll go right here for you. But the eternity of worship. Ugh. And these creatures, what are all these creatures doing there? Um, I don't have three weeks, so let me give you 30 seconds. Here's the advice I got from a pastor. Um, when you're trying to study Revelation, don't focus on the trees, focus on the forest. In other words, why is it 24 eyes? And is it something about the pupils? You can lose years of your life on that. What are the forests here? Well, well, Pastor, what are the 24 elders? I don't know, but probably the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles to represent that it's the entire body of content from the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Well, what are these four creatures? Probably everything. Because back in that day and time, they broke all of creation down into four categories. Domesticated animals, non-domesticated animals, flying animals, and humans. And you have a domesticated animal like the ox. You have a non-domesticated animal like the lion. You have the flying animals like the eagle. And you have the woman like a human. What's the point they're trying to make? They have eyes all over. They see everything. What's the point that they're making? They're singing these songs over and over. Here's the point it's trying to make. Two words. Everybody worships. That's what John sees. John sees everybody worships, not only in heaven, but John sees this answers every deep question for humanity ever. Why were we made? Why am I here? What's this all leading towards? What's the basic problem with human beings? Why are we fallen? Where is this all heading? How does history end up? What are we working towards? Worship. You were designed by God to worship. And if that's how you were designed, every single human being worships something. Thank you, Dave. Everybody worships something. It's just we don't all worship the right thing. What do you mean by worship? I mean something in your life that you will do anything you can to be in its uninterrupted presence. And when you are finally in its uninterrupted presence... It changes your posture. It changes your words. You submit to its control over your emotions. It can move you to tears. It can get you out of your seat. It elicits joy. Like the guy who spends all week studying football statistics and following his ESPN app to know who's starting for the Ravens this Sunday and on Sunday morning at great expense and effort to himself or to herself. They put on their $140 jersey. They spend money on their $200 tickets. They drive to the game. They paint their face. They spend all kinds of money to get into the uninterrupted presence. And in that time, they are electrified. They are in the presence of the thing they've been thinking about all week. And it brings them to their feet. And it can bring them to tears. It can impact them all week. That's a form of worship. You don't have to make yourself do that. You are magnetized in your life by your creator to be seeking your whole life for something bigger than you that you can submit to its control and turn to to find joy, comfort, peace, escapism, 
wholeness, pleasure. Let's not just beat up the, the football fans in the room because, you know, there's other things on the other. Oh, 11.36. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, let me give you one more. Sex. Now you're ready to listen. There are so many people that are, would be so uncomfortable to really admit how much sex, the, the thought of a sexually appealing image consumes you, lays on your heart, obsesses you. You would be mortified if anybody knew how often you turned to sex, to images, to experiences to obsessions, to find peace, to find comfort, to find satisfaction. Runs through our mind all the time. Celebrities, people come to pieces, hobbies, possessions, vacation. There are all kinds of things. We're hardwired. Psalm 19 says this, all the mountains praise God. All the oceans praise God. They were designed to worship him. And the ocean worships differently than me. It worships different than I do, but haven't you ever been to the ocean and just been there at the right time when the sun is going up or coming down and just, it took your breath away? Or you've been up in the mountains and you've just looked at the, the peaks of the mountains and you've seen the colors of the leaves change in the fall and it takes your breath away. Why? Because they're doing what they were supposed to do. They're reflecting the majesty of God and it takes our breath away. What John is showing us is this, is that ultimately the end game is this, everybody worships something. Everybody worships. Everything was made to worship. And unless and until God becomes the supreme idol, the supreme place in your heart, you'll put an idol there. What are those things that until you have them, your life will still feel restless to you? That's what you really worship. What is the thing that if you lost it, you'd feel like you couldn't go on? That's what you really worship. So who or what do you worship? And is it possible that you are also lukewarm? And to what extent? Let's pray this morning as the worship team comes to close us. You don't have to listen to me next week, so you basically got three messages in one today. So you don't get an award for it. Um, but you're all caught up for Pastor James next week. Most importantly... I realize these letters were written to Christians that we talked about this morning, and I don't want to make the arrogant assumption that everybody listening in the room and listening to our podcast or watching on Facebook would self-identify as a Christian. Here's what I would tell you. For a moment, don't judge everything you think about Christianity by maybe the lukewarm Christians that you've run into. I will tell you this. Friend, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart today, and he's knocking on it. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He knows, and I hope you know, that you don't have the currency, the ability, or the education to make yourself into the person you really want to be, but you've just found that you can't. He's not promising you to be a delivery mechanism for all the wealth and the fame and the comfort and the ease and the satisfaction uh, out of this human experience that, that you've been craving for in other ways, he's promising to give you all of him, and you will find that that is more than enough. He waits for you to respond to the knocking on the door of your heart. And if you'll let him come in, he'll transform you, he will electrify you, he will fill your heart with love and grace, forgiveness. You'll no longer wrestle with the awareness of your shame and your guilt 
and your past that will be covered over in a wave of his love. Opening the door on your behalf looks like this. You must, have, you must say, Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. And Jesus, I accept payment for my sins. I accept forgiveness over my life. And now you're the leader. You're the ultimate leader. You are the Lord. I am your servant. If you'll do that this morning, he will come right in and he will fellowship with you like close friends. Let's pray. If you're ready to make that decision today to accept Jesus, here's the prayer to pray. Dear Jesus, I believe everything the Bible says about you is true. That you're the son of God, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross in my place, that you've paid the penalty for my sin, that you rose from the dead, you're alive today, and you're knocking on the door of my heart because you love me and you want to be in relationship with me. And what's holding you back from relationship with me the way you want it is my sin. You hate it and I hate it. So today I want that to be removed. I accept the payment for my sins of your blood that you made for me on the cross. Thank you for forgiving me. Now I bow my knee to you. You're the leader of my life. You're the Lord. I'm not. I step away from the steering wheel of my life and I invite you to sit in its place. And I trust that where you'll lead me and guide me will be for my very best. Let your love fill my heart. I want my soul to be electrified by your presence as this power of the gospel comes and takes me up. In your name I pray, amen. Heavenly Father, we repent for our lukewarmness, for allowing in our effort to be smart, in our spiritual pride, to become Christians who say, I've heard all that before, and it doesn't do anything for me. God, we repent. Break us of that. Shatter our hearts for you again. I pray that a wave of humility and brokenness and teachability and zeal and jealousy and passion will flood Echo Community Church. that we will not be too proud to admit in some ways I've become lukewarm and tepid. My faith doesn't do for me what I would want for it to do, and that's not enough. Lord, that we would recognize our own nakedness and poverty and wretchedness and turn joyfully for to you as the giver and the author of life, that our worship would be sincere and vibrant, that our prayers would be easily offered, that they would be as much about fellowship as they would be about getting work done, and that the result of that would be hot and cold Christians being sent out from this place every week into a world that drastically needs their temperature changed. We worship you.